Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Folks, I have warned you before. Cranking your bass up too much will blow out your speaker. The lead starts right now. Republicans need a new leader, and they need that person quick. The government runs out of money again next month. So who should become the next House Speaker? And what deal will he make with those eight House Republicans who toppled McCarthy? Plus, petty, petty, petty politics. First Nancy Pelosi, then Steny Hoyer, both kicked out of their Capitol office space. We have brand new CNN reporting about who was really behind this decision. And a CNN exclusive, $10 million in legal bills for Hunter Biden and exhausted efforts to find more funds. Where's a shady foreign billionaire when you really need him? Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today on Capitol Hill, where the race for House Speaker is on. Majority Leader Steve Scalise of Louisiana and Republican Jim Jordan of Ohio have officially joined the race now that Kevin McCarthy has officially been fired. An ignominious history-making headline for the Californian. A new speaker could be a fresh start for House Republicans, or it could be just another hostage sitting in the same office, terrified of doing anything to offend a tiny faction of his party. So how did we get here for the very first time? in American history. Speakerless. Well, it might have really all began when Kevin McCarthy thought he could appease the MAGA right with almost the notion that he would allow them to set just some of the building on fire. But that's not how fire works. While the votes were still being counted, two days after the election of 2020, Kevin McCarthy decided he would cast his lot with the election liars. President Trump won this election, so everyone who's listening, do not be quiet. Do not be, do not be silent about this. We cannot allow this to happen before our very eyes. And so, Kevin McCarthy brought in the fire, and he stoked it. Weeks later, then came the violent pro-Trump mob storming the Capitol, based on those election lies. And McCarthy continued to stoke that fire. He voted to reject the election results in Pennsylvania and in Arizona, also based on those lies. And what's perhaps most interesting about those votes is the cravenness that McCarthy admitted about it to CNN's Manu Raju. He said, essentially, it was okay to throw out those millions of votes from Pennsylvanians and Arizonans because Joe Biden still would have had 270 electoral votes and still would have been president. If Arizona and Pennsylvania were removed in the Electoral College, would President Biden's number lower between lower below 270? No, but Donald Trump said okay, that the House could have no. o- the Congress well, well, could well, have well, overturned well, the election. I'm not Donald right Trump. There. So you're asking me the question. You I'm, a- I'm answering your question. You 
But you can't do insurrection light. You can't be sedition-ish. That's not how it works. That's not how fire works. But Kevin McCarthy wanted power. And when those hardline Republicans, to whom he'd been pandering, made that final demand, the ability of just one of them to force a vote to fire him, McCarthy took it. And he became House Speaker, and then he lost his job. And when he lost his job yesterday, he blamed Democrats. He said the Democrats didn't have respect for institutions. Kevin McCarthy picked a hell of a time to start caring about institutions. CNN's Melanie Zanona is on Capitol Hill. Melanie, we're coming up on 24 hours since that historic vote that removed McCarthy as House Speaker. What does the race look like to succeed him? Well, Jake, the race is already heating up. I had been told that Steve Scalise, as of last night, was already making calls to his colleagues and lining up supporters. And earlier today, he made it official in a letter to his colleagues. I want to read you part of that letter. He said, God already gave me another chance at life. I believe we were all here, put here for a purpose. This next chapter won't be easy, but I know what it takes to fight, and I am prepared for the battles that lie ahead. I humbly ask you for your support on this mission to be your Speaker of the House. So, Jake, a reference there to the fact that Steve Scalise was shot at a GOP baseball practice back in 2017. Now he is undergoing treatment for blood cancer, but he says he feels great that he is up for the job, and this is a moment that he and his team have been preparing for for quite some time. They've long been seen as waiting in the wings if McCarthy were to step aside or were to stumble. But, Jake, I can tell you this is not going to be a coronation for Steve Scalise. He is going to have to face off against Jim Jordan the Judiciary Committee chairman who has the support of many conservatives in his party. Jim Jordan also made his candidacy official today, and Armanu Raju caught up with him. Here's what he had to say. What promises are you making to the conference, policy-wise, agenda-wise? The agenda is what I spoke about on the floor, Manu. We need to pass the bills that need to be passed. We've done a lot of that. The biggest one, of course, is H.R. 2, the Immigration Border Security uh, Legislation. Frankly, I wish Chuck Schumer would bring it up. Now, both men made their case today before the House GOP Texas delegation, a very large and influential block of conservatives and Republicans here in the House. And some of the questions that they are being asked, Jake, include what are you going to do with Ukraine funding? That, of course, has been a polarizing issue inside the conference. Jordan suggested he would not support more funding for Ukraine. And also, are you going to reform the motion to vacate that tool that was used to oust Kevin McCarthy? Hardliners say it needs to stay exactly where it is. But now there are some moderates and centrists in the party who are saying we need to reform that tool so we don't have chaos again on the floor. But all of this is not going to be sorted out until next week at the earliest. House GOP is going to have a candidate forum on Tuesday. They will vote on their elections on Wednesday. But the big question remains, can this unruly Republican conference rally around a single person to lead them? Until they do, the House is going to be paralyzed. Jake. All right, Melanie Zanona, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's Jamie Gangel, as along with her deep Rolodex. Uh, Jamie, <laughs> right after Kevin McCarthy was fired, we've seen two former Democratic leaders of the House, Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer, uh, kicked out of their Capitol offices. Uh, a big break from tradition, uh, not certainly how Pelosi treated former Republican leaders. And you have some new reporting about how that happened. The interim speaker, Patrick McHenry, is being blamed for this. Is that is that fair? Uh, no. This is real estate revenge. And yes, Patrick McHenry gave the public order. But according to multiple sources who've told me and our colleague, Annie Grayer, in fact, it will not surprise you to know 
that Kevin McCarthy was responsible for Pelosi and Steny Hoyer losing their hideaways. And guess who is moving into Pelosi's office? You get one guess. Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy. Uh, one Republican source said to me, quote, Kevin is on a revenge tour. Patrick would never do that on his own. This was Kevin's call. Classy. Um, you've been talking to sources about how McCarthy's removal uh, went down. Tell us more. Look, you laid out what happened on the Republican side with the Matt Gates aide and, and Kevin McCarthy's self-inflicted wound. But we also talked about how the Democrats kept discipline. And I'm told that it came down, in effect, to one photograph. Remember the photograph from Mar-a-Lago, where Kevin McCarthy went running down and stood next to Donald Trump. Breathing life back into him after January 6th. Absolutely. So there were some Democrats, and we reported this, who had talked about doing a deal with McCarthy, bailing him out. But in the end, the leadership, including Nancy Pelosi, including some members of the January 6th committee, like Zoe Lofgren, said to their conference, you cannot support a man, you cannot bail out a man who is standing next to Donald Trump, who tried to overthrow the election and the rule of law. And then there is obviously the Trump factor. Um, (laughs) McCarthy thanked Trump profusely uh, after the 15th vote that, that secured him the speakership, um, how much did McCarthy's relationship with Donald Trump play in, in his removal, do you think? Uh, apparently, uh, as we've said many times, loyalty is a one-way street. Yeah. Despite that trip to Mar-a-Lago, despite uh, Kevin McCarthy repeatedly going on bended knee, Donald Trump could have bailed Kevin McCarthy out. He did not. Yeah, that says it all, really. Right. Jamie Gangel, thanks so much. We now turn to... Republican Congressman Garrett Graves of Louisiana. For the record, he voted to keep McCarthy as speaker yesterday. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, When asked last night if your party can decide on a leader by next week, you said, hell no. Do you still feel that way now? Because your party, my understanding, is scheduled to vote a week from today. Uh, the, the party is scheduled to vote, and I think that, that what's going on right now is that uh, I think people are going home, letting tempers decompress a little bit, coming back together starting on Tuesday, going to do a candidate forum and have people that are interested in the speaker's role uh, talking about their candidacy and what they want to do, and then ideally a vote's on Wednesday. But I want to remind you, Jake, going back to January, uh, even without all the sore wounds then, it took 15 votes to finally elect a Speaker of the House. I think you have more raw emotions at this point, and quite frankly, I'm not sure why anybody would even want the speakership right now and that the, the, the position really lacks stability. Who do you think should be speaker? I mean, your fellow Louisiana and uh, Steve Scalise obviously uh, is, is running. Um, yeah. and, and who do you think the eight Republicans who voted to oust McCarthy might support? Uh, look, I, I think that, uh, you know, some interesting dynamic is anyone who they come out in support of, I think, is going gonna, is gonna to cause a lot of other Republicans to, uh, to, to, to really have a distaste for. And so it's a very interesting dynamic that we're seeing right now. Look, there are a lot of good people who have thrown their name in the, in the ring, but I've been very clear that we're not going to make a commitment right now. Obviously, uh, you know, any, any speaker from Louisiana would be, uh, would be fantastic, but uh, I want to be clear, we're not going to make any commitments right now at all. 
all, and here's why. I think one of the first things you've got to do is you've got to actually establish stability to the position. The fact that any one person can come out and can effectively cause this motion to vacate is totally inappropriate. Jake, you know this. This is third in line to President of the United States. We don't need to have the kind of chaos and instability that we saw yesterday. So you need, as a, as a pledge to get your support, somebody who says... We, can't, we I got to get rid. We got to get rid as a conference. We have to get rid of this one person motion to vacate because it makes everything unstable. I think what would make sense is two different things before we even get into the speaker's race. Number one, within the Republican conference, there's a rule already that Matt Gaetz violated yesterday that prohibits any one person from bringing up a motion to vacate. The problem is, is the rule doesn't have any penalty or enforcement action. Secondly, I think the conference should come together and change the House rules to raise the threshold on a motion to vacate above just one. I mean, think about this. Again, third in line to the president of the United States. We don't subject the president or the vice president to that type of low threshold. The United United States needs to have more stability than we saw yesterday. Do you agree with uh, Congressman McHenry's decision? He's the, the temporary speaker, the speaker pro tem, to put a pause on the week to let tensions uh, settle? Uh, Jake, I'll be really candid. I think if we had stayed together uh, in the meeting last night, I I think that you would have seen fists thrown. And I'm not being dramatic when I say that. There is a lot of raw emotions right now. I think it was best to let folks go back home, decompress a little bit, and then come back together. You were yourself pretty passionate on the floor yesterday, expressing some of your disgust. Let's uh, roll a little bit of that clip. What's going on in this country today? What's going on in this body? We have Freedom Works Heritage, Chip Roy and Jim Jordan say something's conservative, and these folks say it's not, and they're right. And all of a sudden, my phone keeps sending text messages. Text messages saying, hey, give me money. Oh, look at that. Oh, look, give me money. I filed the motion to vacate. Using official actions, official actions to raise money. It's disgusting. It's what's disgusting about Washington. Uh, this afternoon, your fellow Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York says he supports removing Congressman Matt Gates from the Republican House Conference. I assume that's who you were talking about uh, on the House floor in that clip. Uh, do you agree? Do you want to remove Matt Gates from the House Republican Conference? Look, I think that would be one of the most unifying actions of this House. <laughs> uh, however, I also think it's really important to not just think about step one, to think steps two, three, four, and five. And in this case, with the slim majority that you have, uh, while there are people that are drooling for that to happen, um, that, that just isn't a viable path forward right now. Um, but I do think that, that, that some type of penalty or punishment for what he did. And, and look, uh, let's be really clear. You had eight, eight uh, Republicans that came together yesterday with 208 Democrats. Uh, so effectively, this was a Democrat eviction of Speaker McCarthy and really didn't represent the, the true position of real Republicans yesterday. No, no minority party ever votes for the opposition leader to be the speaker. I I don't find the Republicans blaming this on Democrats to be very convincing. If the shoe was on the other foot, it would... Jake, let me me be clear on what I was saying. My my, my point is, is that if these... This wasn't a Republican position to to evict Speaker McCarthy, is my point. You're exactly right. That unfortunately, our country has devolved into such partisan politics that, that, that those types of votes are always partisan. But the fact that it was just eight Republican members... And that voted to throw him out and 210 Republican members said, let's keep him because he's kept his commitments. He's exceeded his promises. I think that's really unfortunate. I do have to say, and this is just based on my observations, that 
I do think that that a Paul Ryan or a John Boehner were enough uh, of uh, they had enough respect for institutions that I, I don't know that the same thing would have happened to them. Quite frankly, I just don't. I I, I think that. Kevin McCarthy going along with the election lies and trying to appease the most extreme elements of your party gave the Democrats... I mean, Mitt Romney said something along those lines earlier today, that he yeah. aligned himself with such extreme factions, he made it impossible for Democrats to support yeah, him. Look, look that, 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 let's, let's be clear here. You had 210 out of 218 Republicans yesterday that supported Speaker McCarthy because they know that he fulfilled his commitments, he exceeded them. The reality is, with the slim majority that you have, you've got to give respect and some degree of deference to all the views, the diverse views of the conference. The Speaker advocated for the speaker achieved some of the greatest conservative successes that we've had in modern history. Things like border energy, the greatest savings in American history with what we negotiated in the debt ceiling negotiation, the first environmental streamlining, strengthening work requirements for welfare, all of these great conservative wins he achieved. That's not catering to the, this group of extremists. It's, it's simply advancing yeah, conservative I'm not talking, objectives. I'm not talking about that, though. I'm talking about lying about the election. I'm talking about not punishing people when they say, you know, horrifically bigoted things. I'm talking about that sort of, you know, speaking at a white nationalist convention. I'm not talking about conservative principles. Hang on, hang on. A few things. Like, number one, Speaker McCarthy didn't speak at any... No, no, I'm not talking... No, no, I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about Gosar and and Marjorie Taylor Greene doing it and, like, him not saying anything about it. And and the Speaker of the House has has had a number of conversations with members that have gotten out of line. Similarly, whenever Democrats have gotten out of line, uh, we've tried to take appropriate actions there as well. But that's that's not what this is about. Bottom line is the the, the Speaker has achieved some incredible successes in recent... uh, Over the last several months, and the far majority of Republicans, in fact, over 96% of Republicans in the House voted to keep him. This small minority getting together, uh, in this case with House Democrats, I think it was incredibly unfortunate. They didn't think through successive steps. Now we have the House of Representatives completely frozen, and once again, this small group of of the Chaos Caucus has caused the House to be unable to move forward on things like border security, appropriations, bills, and others. Uh, These are the arsonists that light their house on fire, that uh, whine about their house being on fire, put it out, want accolades for doing it, then set up a, yeah. a GoFundMe page to get money for it. It's outrageous. <laughs> Republican Absolutely Congressman outrageous. Garrett Graves of Louisiana, good to hey, see thanks, you, sir. Jake. Thanks for coming on. Republicans on the Problem Solvers Caucus threatened to quit en masse yesterday when Democrats voted to remove McCarthy as Speaker. Have tensions cooled off at all in the last 24 hours? I'll ask a Democrat who is in that bipartisan group if it still exists. Plus, Donald Trump's parting words as he left a New York courtroom for day three of the civil fraud trial against him. Stay with us. One of the most well-known groups on the Hill trying to find bipartisan consensus, which is not easy, might now fall apart in the wake of the vote to remove Kevin McCarthy. Uh, With us now is Congressman Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey, who is the Democratic co-chair of that group, the Problem Solvers Caucus. Uh, Congressman, does the Problem Solvers Caucus still exist? CNN's Melanie Zanona reports that the Republican members of the group are, are considering quitting after every Democrat voted to vacate, to fire Kevin McCarthy. Uh, the group exists and it's strong. And, you know, I'm grateful for the members on both sides of the aisle. You know, listen, this was an emotional day yesterday. And I understand and, and have deep respect for all my colleagues 
The key now, of course, after working incredibly hard to avoid a shutdown this weekend, which we did successfully working together, and of course, uh, the debt ceiling deal a couple weeks back, um, you know, now we got to focus on making sure that in 40 days from now, we don't shut the government down. And uh, that, that's my, my number one focus. And then looking for ways that we can run the House in a smarter, more bipartisan way that, that of course, doesn't uh, encourage extremism, but actually encourages more bipartisan governing, which is, as you know, my focus. So Jamie Gengel, our reporter, is um, reporting that it was Kevin McCarthy, actually, who was the force behind the interim speaker, Patrick McHenry, kicking both Pelosi and Steny Hoyer out of their Capitol building hideaways, their their offices. Um, that's obviously a big break from tradition, not what Pelosi did with former Republican leaders when she became speaker. Um, Pelosi, as you know, is not even around to remove her boxes and such from that office because she's in California attending the funeral of her good friend, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein. Uh, what's your reaction to all this? I mean, it's not what I would do, but, you know, listen, we've got real issues we've got to focus on, right? I mean, you've got Ukraine funding, which is essential to making sure we stand up to China, Iran, and Russia, uh, and Putin's dictatorial march. We've got to make sure we keep, as I said, the lights on, and we support our veterans, our law enforcement, our seniors, our children, right? We've got real issues there that we're facing in just a matter of weeks. So I think that's where we have to focus our time and, and our energy over these next weeks. Obviously, uh, the Republicans are focused on picking their next leader on the, on the future speaker, um, uh, and that's something within their family. But we've got to get right back to the table and make sure that we work together as Democrats and Republicans, because when you're in a divided government, Jake, as you know, that's the only way we're going to be able to get things done, as we've seen over these last months. We've got to figure out a way to work together, uh, and, and we've got to figure out a way to let common sense prevail. The two names that we've heard and the two names of candidates who have declared their intention to run for speaker are Congressman Steve Scalise uh, and Congressman Jim Jordan. Uh, is there one of those two that you think would be more promising in terms of your hopes for bipartisan legislation? Well, you know, Jake, I'm from Jersey. We don't mess with other people's families, you know, so I'm going to leave it to them to work out within their family who they want their leader to be. I don't get a vote for that uh, in their caucus. Uh, you know, my preference would be Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, but but again, like that's that they've got to work that out. What we've got to work together on is actually legislating and, and moving the country forward. And so I'm eager when they get past that part of, of what they've got to work out next week, that we get right to work for for the American people, because that I, I do have a say in and, and a seat at the table. So what's your basic argument to people like Kevin McCarthy and others that are that are like that are saying, you know, you voted with Matt Gates. You voted for chaos. You could have done uh, more to support the institution. These are not my arguments, and I don't want tweets saying that I am blaming the Democrats for this. This is not my argument. Yeah, be careful there, Jake. No, I am not saying this. But what is your argument to those people saying, Democrats, you had a chance to stand for sanity and in the institution, and you didn't do it? Well, one, as I said, they've got to pick their own folks and make decisions on how they keep bending to the extremists and their party. That's how they've decided to, to do this and, and again, empower them. But again, you know, there was a lot of outreach and we, we tried to find a way forward together. Uh, uh, Speaker McCarthy made it clear in his press conference last night, I think he said, I'm, I'm not going to sell my soul or something like that, referring to working with Democrats uh, on, on something that we could encourage more bipartisan governing and working together. 
that's totally his decision, I, and that's that's up for him to make, and was up for him to make. And now the question is, what do we do going forward? Because to me, that's what the country wants us to do: is okay, how are you going to make this work? And you know, we've got to figure out ways, and that may be looking at the rules to change the rules and change the motion of vacate, so it's not just one person being able to throw out a speaker. That's a set of rules that we change of the Problem Solvers Caucus in prior Congress that got yeah. changed back uh, this year, and I, I don't think was a smart move. Um, and I understand Matt Gates wanted it, but but you're just giving them a loaded weapon when you do that. And and But yeah. it's going to take also making sure we change the rules to encourage more bipartisan governing, more Democratic bills, being able to get to the floor where, they're bi- where both sides can agree, mm-hmm. um, more yep. amendments from Democrats, you know, encouraging a more bipartisan House. Democratic Congressman Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, CNN exclusive thanks, reporting Rick. on Hunter Biden's $10 million legal problems. We're back in a moment. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In our Law and Justice lead today, former President Donald Trump has seen enough of his own civil fraud trial for now, for now after sitting in a New York courtroom for two and a half days. He flew back to Mar-a-Lago in Florida, but not before filing an appeal against one of the judge's rulings and taking a parting shot at the judge. Trump stands to lose quite a bit in this case. Financially, this could spell the end of his entire business career in New York, and already mounting legal bills are causing cracks in his empire. For the second time in three years, Trump did not make the cut for the Forbes 400 list of the richest Americans. Now to exclusive CNN reporting, President Joe Biden's son Hunter is in big financial trouble and daddy's friends are not coming to the rescue this time, at least not as as of now. Hunter has racked up more than $10 million in legal bills over the past five years and he could need to spend millions more. His allies hoped supporters of President Biden would swoop in with fundraising, but as of now, he might have better luck starting a GoFundMe. CNN's Paula Reed is here to discuss. Paul, how did he manage to get $10 million in the hole, and how does he plan to get out of it? 
He's been under federal investigation for over five years. He had one of the best firms in the country representing him in that probe. He went through a divorce, a messy custody dispute down in Arkansas, and he's also taken on a much more litigious approach to his detractors. He's brought on Abby Lowell, and he's fired off lawsuits against people like Rudy Giuliani and other people who he believes have wronged him. And if you're going to take an approach like that, hire lawyers uh, like those at Latham, like Abby Lowell, that costs a lot of money. Now, how did he pay for it? Well, one of his other lawyers, Kevin Morris, has paid uh, many of his legal bills, but other allies were hoping maybe he could fundraise. Maybe some allies of his father's would come forward and help. Perhaps that was unrealistic, but it didn't materialize. There was also talk earlier this year of a legal defense fund that also did not get off the ground. But now he is facing a likely federal trial on these gun charges and possibly an additional trial if he's indicted on those tax charges. Now, all of those charges were expected to be resolved with a plea deal. But now that he's facing one, possibly two trials, that is going to be a big legal bill there. And it's unclear how he's going to pay it. Hmm. And Hunter Biden, as you just uh, mentioned, just last week filed a lawsuit against uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, another political figure who himself is having trouble paying his legal bills. Uh, Today, Giuliani is filing a lawsuit against President Biden, holding a news conference, this time not outside Four Seasons Total Landscaping in in my beloved city of Philadelphia. Why is Giuliani suing President Biden? So I'm going to preface this by saying suing a public figure for something another public figure that that public figure said about another public figure in the course of a political campaign is very difficult but he is trying to sue the president for defamation and libel for something that biden said during the 2020 campaign when he accused giuliani of being a russian pawn but jake let me allow rudy giuliani to explain this in his own words he said your buddy rudy giuliani he, then he said something we can't understand, blah, 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 like he does sometimes, is being used as a Russian pawn. He blah, is being fed information that is Russian, that is not true. I'm trying to give you the flavor of it. You can go listen to it yourself. They would not answer exactly how Giuliani is going to pay for this legal effort. He owes his other lawyers millions of dollars. And earlier today, his Georgia-based lawyer, Brian Tevis, withdrew from representing him in the Fulton County case, raising more questions about how he is going to pay to defend himself in that case. I, I predict that that is going to go nowhere. This lawsuit, I think that is a reasonable prediction. This was a sparsely attended uh, press conference. And again, it is a very high bar. It's unclear why he is doing this now. Uh, Again, he owes so many lawyers, including some of his closest friends, millions of dollars. I think I have an idea why. Read today's New York Times. Yes. Paula Reed, thanks so much. So the leader of the Republican Party faces a multi-million dollar civil fraud case and 91 criminal charges. Then House Republicans currently do not have a leader. My next guest has a unique perspective. Would he say that his party is in crisis? We are back with more in our Law and Justice lead, and my next guest is someone who is perhaps uniquely positioned to discuss the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump and the speaker drama unfolding on Capitol Hill. Mark Short, the former White House Director of Legislative Affairs for the Trump administration and former Chief of Staff to Vice President Mike Pence and former Chief of Staff for the House Republican Conference. Lots of hats. So let's start with the House drama. There are 433 actively serving members of the House, yet a group of eight Republican rebels are ultimately responsible 
for ousting Kevin McCarthy, who I think it's fair to say was responsible for a lot of conservative legislation passing the House, including H.R. 2, which is this uh, border bill. Um, You know a lot of people on the Hill. Uh, Is this how it should work, that one person, Matt Gaetz, should be able to bring a motion to vacate and eight Republicans should be able to you know, unite with the minority party and topple the speaker? No, certainly not. And I think you saw when Pelosi was speaker, she she certainly didn't allow that one uh, motion to vacate uh, within her conference. And I think whoever succeeds Kevin will make sure that that rule is changed. I don't think it's the way it is. But to be fair, it was negotiated by Kevin when he became speaker back in January. It was a condition to get some of the members to support him. But I don't think it's a healthy process, Jake. No, it's it's pretty crazy. What do you think they're? All, what do you think the the House Republicans are all saying to each other? right now not the not the i know you don't want to curse but like but you know in terms of figuring out a way forward we had uh, congressman graves on he said as you just said you got to get rid of that motion to vacate what what other things do you think they're saying well i think it'll it's appropriate to give them a few days to get away come back on tuesday have a forum allow people to present their issues forward but i think that what's what's concerning is we really are 33 trillion dollars in debt yeah we do have a border crisis there's a lot of issues that need to be solved But the people who were masquerading as fiscal conservatives really, really aren't, Jake. I mean, Matt Gates. to say he came here as a fiscal crusader, it's more likely he came here for the teenage interns on Capitol Hill, to be honest. Look, he, he's voted for continuing resolutions. He's voted for omnibus bills. He voted for trillions of dollars in COVID spending. Even this year, he put forward an earmark. And yet he's presented himself as, I'm doing this for the fiscal benefit of the country. That's not honest. The guy just had a distaste for Kevin and used the rules to dethrone him. Well, you know, I have said there is a border crisis. I mean, at the very least, even if you're a progressive, there's a humanitarian crisis. Uh, And there are $33 trillion in in debt, the country is. And and again, even if you're a progressive, that's $500 billion a year in interest on the debt that we're paying that we could be spending on education or nutrition or whatever. Like, this isn't partisan. These are American problems. This, what Matt Gates did, what these rebels did, I don't see how it advances solving those exactly. problems. Exactly. That's my point. Is that like even a couple of weeks ago when Kevin put forward was a border security bill and cutting discretionary spending by 8%. And that's not the issue. Matt Gates wanted to just take him down. He didn't support that effort to actually have some fiscal control and helping to secure the border. And as you and I have talked before, the reality is the difference between Republicans and Democrats on the government funding is less than like a half a percent of our overall debt. Yeah. The real issue is entitlement spending that no one wants to address. Medicare. 74% yeah. of our, our annual deficits. Yeah. Well, your boss, to his credit, does want to talk about it. Has been, yeah. Um, do you, I mean, your former boss, Vice President Pence. I'm yeah. sorry, I'm yeah. talking. Yeah. I want to make sure everyone knows what I'm talking about. Vice President Pence wants to talk about it. Do you think President Trump will have any influence over whom Republicans choose as the next speaker? Right now, there are only two declared candidates, Steve Scalise of Louisiana and Jim Jordan of Ohio. I think he's always about leverage. So if he feels that it's a close race and he can tip the scales one way or the other, then I think he probably will weigh in. Let's turn now to the civil fraud trial against Trump in New York. He says he plans to testify in his own defense uh, in the case. Um, Why do you think he's choosing to testify? I think it's helpful to him politically, Jake. I think the reality is that a lot of Americans can look at this case and know it's not really a strong case. The reality is that as a real estate developer, anyone would know that even if he did fraudulently assess what the valuations were, anyone who would lend him money would do their own valuation on it. And he paid back those loans. And so I think that for a lot of Americans, this is viewed as just a politically charged prosecution. Yesterday, Trump was admonished by the judge for a social media post attacking the judge's law clerk, making the false allegation that the law clerk, who is not a public figure, uh, was Chuck Schumer's girlfriend. Again, that's a smear. It's not true. 
Um, what do you think is going through Trump's mind right now? And um, are we going to see these kind of attacks get wilder as the trials and the campaign uh, continue? Well, I don't think that they've been limited from getting wild. I think the reality is is his attacks on people who could be testifying against him in the January 6th trial has certainly already happened, whether or not it's attacks on the former vice president or on General Milley. So, uh, yeah, I think that that has continued and probably will continue. All right, Mark Short, good to see you again. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the disturbing lawsuit from a CIA staffer alleging a sexual assault at CIA headquarters and the response she reportedly got when she tried to take her claims to the police. Stay with us. So in our law and justice lead, a CIA staffer is suing the agency, accusing the CIA of intimidation and witness tampering over an alleged sexual assault in a secluded stairwell at CIA headquarters last year. She says a male trainee, quote, wrapped a scarf tightly around her neck, began strangling her with it, made lewd remarks, and tried to kiss her forcibly on her mouth, unquote. The lawsuit claims the CIA warned the staffer that reporting the assault to law enforcement would cause them to stop their investigation. But the CIA staffer did report the attack to law enforcement. Her assailant was convicted of misdemeanor assault and battery in August. CNN's Katie Bo Lillis is here. Katie Bo, what more can you tell us about the disturbing details in this lawsuit? Yeah, Jake, so I, I spoke to the victim's lawyer this morning, and he says that while he remains deeply concerned over what she said were multiple instances in which the CIA actively tried to discourage her from reporting the attack at the time to law enforcement, what has allowed him to bring legal action in this moment is a series of internal instant messages between the victim and another employee of the CIA that the CIA ultimately decided to voluntarily provide to her attacker's defense counsel during his criminal proceedings in August. So during this trial in August, the victim's lawyer receives notification from her attacker's lawyers saying, look, we have these internal messages between your client and another member of the CIA. According to the lawsuit, the CIA not only voluntarily turned over those messages to her attacker, but the suit claims also selectively edited them in such a way that it makes it appear as if the victim was having an extramarital affair, which she denies. So, for example, according to the suit, a message in which she is talking about feeling sore from a workout at the gym was allegedly presented in such a way that it made it look like she was talking about being sore from a sexual encounter with this other employee. Again, something that the victim denies. So for for the victim, she is saying that this is the CIA attempting to intimidate her from testifying at her attacker's trial and ultimately help him get off. Is the CIA commenting? That's I mean, if that's accurate, that's reprehensible. So the CIA is is not commenting on this case directly, citing the the ongoing litigation. They do say uh, that they, as a matter, as a general matter, follow the law. They protect the privacy of their officers, and that they are extremely committed to uh, sort of addressing sexual assault and sexual harassment claims from inside the agency. But we do know that this victim is not the only woman who has come forward claiming that the agency mishandled her report of sexual misconduct. The Senate and the House Intelligence Committees are both investigating this sort of broader problem, as is the CIA inspector general. And so what's important about this case, Jake, is that it is it's really sort of one of the first kind of public glimpses that we've gotten into what exactly the allegations against the CIA with regards to their handling of sexual misconduct cases actually are. All right. Stay on top of the story. Really important. Really appreciate it. Katie Willis, thanks so much. Coming up, House Republicans have given themselves a full week before they even start voting on who will be their next speaker. So what exactly 
are they doing in the meantime? And a vilified world leader may be watching it all from thousands of miles away and relishing in this mess. That's ahead. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, what prosecutors did not explain in their 39-page indictment against Democratic Senator Bob Menendez. The New York Times went digging, and they uncovered the details of a deadly car crash kept quiet for years, and Menendez's wife was behind the wheel. How that might explain the Mercedes-Benz convertible she was allegedly given through close connections of the senator. Plus, The unintended targets of yet another mass shooting, 531 of them in the U.S. just this year alone. What police are saying about the latest one on the campus of Morgan State University in Baltimore. And leading this hour, who will be the next Speaker of the House? As a few Republican names lobby for the title, another important question is starting to emerge. Will Republicans keep the rule that got them into this mess? The rule that allowed just a single member of Congress to motion for a vote on removing the speaker. Florida Congressman Matt Gates used that rule on McCarthy. Then seven of his Republican colleagues joined him. They all voted to kick McCarthy out of the speakership, joining with the minority party and achieving that for the first time in American history. Let's go straight to CNN's chief congressional correspondent, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Manu, what sort of power struggles are playing out right now behind the scenes and what can we expect to see over the next seven days. Yeah, there is a scramble going on behind the scenes to succeed Kevin McCarthy. Already two declared candidates in the race. Steve Scalise, the House Majority Leader, as well as the House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, meeting with their colleagues and trying to secure commitments, suggesting to them that they could unite this badly divided Republican conference. But the question is, can they get there? There is ample anger still at those eight Republicans who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy and at Congressman Matt Gates, even as some calls within the GOP to boot him out of the House Republican conference altogether. Those are still coming and questions about how that will play out. But as we are hearing from Republicans on both sides of the Capitol, concerned that the events of yesterday could undercut their ability to govern and and raise serious questions about their ability to hold on to the control of the House. You've got eight people over there that say they stand on on, uh, principle and policy. And it's really all about, you know, self-promotion. It's, it's beyond frustrating. I would have a hard time actually saying there are true Republicans. They're about promoting themselves. They're Republicans by name and registration only. If they were for the party, they would have done what was best for the party. What was the party doing now? We're not able to do anything. And that is one of Kevin McCarthy's closest allies now on the Senate who had served in the House, taking aim at those members. Now, behind the scenes, Jake, there is debate within the Republican conference about how to go forward and whether or not to maintain that rule to allow one individual member to seek a speaker's ouster. Many members want the next speaker candidate to declare that that is off the table, that they will change that rule, raise the threshold for calling for such a vote. That is not what the hardliners in the conference want. They want to 
maintain that issue? And also, Jake, a question about how they'll deal with some key policy issues. Jim Jordan today told me that he is against more funding for Ukraine, going further than the position that Kevin McCarthy had, even as he put the brakes on aid at this moment. Jake. All right, Manu Raju, thanks so much. The House of Representatives had one of the most embarrassing weeks in history after firing the House Speaker for the first time ever in American history. And then what did House Republicans do after that? They took the rest of the week off. Not exactly the response that many of you watching at home would have done if you had disgraced yourself so badly at work. In fact, the only evidence we've seen of any work going on right now among House Republicans is that acting House Speaker Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry kicked out two senior Democrats Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer, from their honorary offices inside the Capitol. So is any real work going on inside the House of Representatives right now? CNN's Tom Foreman is here to answer my annoying questions. Tom, what is happening with the House now that they seem to be in limbo, purgatory, whatever you want to call it? The most likely thing that is happening is that they're listening for the sound of a freight train, because that is the calendar right now. Look at this. Even if they go forward with this House GOP meeting next week as planned, even if they somehow produced a speaker right now, they suddenly are up against five and a half weeks before a government shutdown deadline. That's the freight train I'm talking about right here. Five and a half weeks to handle an issue that was already wildly contentious, that set the stage for exactly what has happened now, and you would have to navigate all of this with all the same people and a new speaker in place figuring out how to do it. Now, yes, as you point out, they do have a speaker pro tem. The rules allowed for that. Representative uh, Patrick McHenry is in place. The question is, Jake, how much can he actually do? And in this unprecedented circumstance, there are many questions about that. So we know Congressman Patrick McHenry, the, the temporary speaker, he's basically there to oversee the election of the new actual speaker and, and nothing else. So what can't get done or is at least very unlikely to be able to get done now. Yeah, this is all very theoretical, and I like the way you're phrasing it. There were, Jake, I was talking to Manu earlier, and he made the point of saying, look, the Congressional Research Service said he can call people to order, he can make some basic rulings, he can see if they have a quorum, things like that, but basically he's just there to pick a new speaker. So what does that mean? That means that all sorts of things that Democrats, are, that Republicans might want to deal with, Democrats as well, just can't be dealt with. The budget, we've already talked about. Defense spending out there, which Republicans like to talk about a lot. This Ukraine debate that's going on. Any improvements or changes at the border. Any national emergencies that might come along. Hopefully they don't, but that also goes into a kind of a slowdown. One of the few things that seems like it could go forward would be the work of some committees. But what's the point of going forward if you don't know what direction you're going? Jake? All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. The drama on Capitol Hill is contributing to a gloomy outlook for U.S. military aid to Ukraine. No House Speaker means no additional money for the war-torn country, at least for now. And once a new Speaker is chosen, it's unclear if that person will support Ukraine at all. One contender, Congressman Jim Jordan, as you heard from Manu, already has suggested it will not be first on his list of priorities at all. And it's not just Jordan. Ukraine's allies are worried that any speaker candidate will be pressured into ditching Ukraine aid as a condition of their colleagues' support, especially those in the MAGA caucus. Let's get right to CNN's Fred Pleitkin, who's in eastern Ukraine for us. Uh, Fred, how rapidly 
Is Ukraine draining the supply and funds that it already has? Extremely rapidly. And we could see a lot of that over the past week that we've been here on the front lines in eastern Ukraine, where a lot of the offensive actions that the Ukrainians are taking are currently going on. In fact, we were in one battle where the Ukrainians were using a lot of ammo that we know is Western ammo to try and push the Russians back. And just earlier today, Jake, um, I was at an artillery position that the Ukrainians are using, and they had a Western-supplied howitzer and American-supplied ammunition. And they told us that ammunition is extremely scarce already. They said... At this current rate right now, for every shot that the Ukrainians can fire, the Russians can fire 10. And so obviously they understand that if there's any sort of holdups, any sort of delays in further U.S. aid, that situation is going to become a lot worse as they're trying to support the Ukrainian troops that are currently trying to advance. Now, one of the things that we do know is that for things like artillery ammunition, howitzer ammunition, um, there are other NATO countries that can make up for some of those shortfalls if bad comes to worse. But there's also other things that only the United States can supply. If we look, for instance, at ammunition for the HIMARS, those multiple rocket launching system, but also uh, the surface-to-air missile systems that the U.S. has provided to Ukraine, any sort of ammo for that, rockets for that, has to come from the United States, Jake. And, and Fred, CNN was first to report that the U.S. is going to transfer thousands of seized Iranian weapons to Ukraine as Ukraine continues to wait for more funds. What kind of weapons are these? Yeah, these are mostly light weapons, um, as they call them here, but still weapons that certainly can make a difference. First of all, it's a million rounds of, of ammunition, which, of course, is a lot and would go a long way for the Ukrainians, even at the, at the rate that they're firing right now. A lot of it is rifles. It's thousands of rifles, most probably some sort of model of the AK-47. But one of the things that we picked up on as we went through that list, and of course, CNN was the first to report on that, is that there's also anti-tank guided missiles that are part of that as well. It seems as though it's 70 of those, which doesn't seem like a lot. But of course, at the current rate that the Ukrainians are using these things, it's definitely something that could also make a difference as well. What we've seen uh, on the battlefields here in Ukraine is we've been you know, coming here over the past year and a half that this conflict or, or that this Russian invasion has been going on is that the Ukrainians use those kind of weapons and they are very important to them, Jake. All right. CNN's Fred Plykin in eastern Ukraine for us. Thanks so much. Our next guest, presided over the chamber and banged the gavel when Kevin McCarthy became the first House Speaker in American history ever to be ousted by a floor vote. The office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. Republican Congressman Steve Womack of Arkansas then called the motion to remove McCarthy, quote, utterly irresponsible, counterproductive, and a distraction from our duty, unquote. And Congressman Womack joins me now. Congressman, uh, you supported Kevin McCarthy. Do you know who you're going to support now? I do. I do. Thanks, Jake, for having me. Uh, I'm a Scalise guy. Steve Scalise, I think, has earned the opportunity to lead this conference, uh, should he be elected. Conservative bonafides speak for themselves. Uh, He's got an operation in place. He, look, he, he's an amazing person. He's a survivor. Um, and, and I told him last night in a private phone call that as long as his doctors are good with it, as long as his wife Jennifer is good and his family is good with it, uh, then I'm all in. And, and look, we need to rally behind, coalesce around a speaker's candidate. Now, we have two already in the race. We need to coalesce as early as Tuesday night 
and get this vote taken as soon as possible so we can continue to move the work of the American people in the Congress. I know it's early yet, but do you have any idea what the vote count looks like? None, none at all. I, I, I do not have a feel for how this is going to go. I, I said early on, and I believe this, that Scalise is one of those guys that could get McCarthy-type support across the conference. He appeals to a broad section of the conference for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that he was shot many years ago and now he's dealing with uh, another medical issue. But, but I do think his story resonates with a lot of people. And, um, and plus, his operation is in place and he has the ability to fundraise. So, I, look, I think he has earned this right, but it's, it's going to be a vote. We're going to yeah. have a, maybe a binary choice, maybe not. So we'll see on uh, Tuesday night. So obviously what happened yesterday was was an historic moment. It's never happened before in the history of this great republic. What was it like for you to preside over that moment? It's very surreal. Uh, as I have uh, discussed with others, the, knowing that I was going to preside, I had been asked earlier in the day, and, and, I, and I knew the historical significance of what we were possibly about to do. And I went down and I spent some time with a parliamentarian because I wanted to go over all of the potential things that could happen in a highly emotionally charged, very contentious setting of, of, of the U.S. House of Representatives. And, and we went through a lot of those different issues. There I learned that we were going to be doing a roll call vote, which was going to take us the better part of an hour to complete. And so having a good feel for what could possibly come up, you know, whether it's a point of order, you know, a, an appeal of the decision of the chair, those are the kinds of things you have to be prepared for. And I knew a lot of people would be watching, and I knew there'd be a lot of people in the chamber, in the gallery, and, and, and there were. But, but Jake, look, we didn't need this. We didn't need a situation where we were going through something as serious as this, and yet didn't have our act together in the chair and didn't look like things were in order. And I think we did a pretty good job of controlling the floor so as not to let things escalate into something contentious and, and uh, terribly unproductive. No, I mean, you, you did a great job uh, uh, presiding, but, you know, the general message is obviously one of chaos. Um, do you think Republicans will need to change this motion to vacate rules, no matter who becomes speaker? I, I interviewed a Congressman Graves uh, earlier today, uh, and he was uh, reluctant to endorse his fellow Louisianan because he needs to know where Scalise stands on motion to vacate because he wants that rule gone. I want that rule gone. I, I think it's absurd. There's a reason we have never done this in history before. And it's just absurd for us to be put in a situation where one person or just a small handful of people could paralyze Congress the way it is paralyzed right now. So I, I am in favor of a, of a change in the rules package, but that'll be a vote of the conference. And we'll have to decide that as a group of people. And I believe in, in you know, the will of the group. If we're going to do that, let's do it. There's a lot of other things that people are talking about right now. Jake, I think more than anything, we need just a period of introspection. We need our members to go home. I'll go home tonight. We'll, we need to spend this weekend having a, a kind of a very sobering conversation with ourselves about who are we, what did we just do, why did we do it, how can we prevent it from happening in the future, and then get about the business of electing a speaker. Reminder, we're on the clock right now. We have no timeouts left. This clock is running quickly to the middle of November, and then we're going to face what we faced last weekend, perhaps all over again, maybe this time, without 
a confirmed speaker. Your, your colleague, Mr. Congressman Graves, also told me um, that he was glad uh, that uh, Speaker Pro Tem McHenry um, adjourned for the week because he thought if you all had continued in session, uh, there could have been a fistfight, that it would have come to, to blows. Do you agree? I agree with that. I absolutely. I sit in those meetings and it does get contentious, even in just basic terms. Yesterday was different. Uh, there was anger. There was frustration. And frankly, there was desperation going on. Uh, here you have a paralyzed Congress and you've got a lot of members sitting in the room with low ceilings, close quarters. Uh, look, I think it was the right thing to do to get us on out of there. Let us go home. Let's come back with a, a renewed sense of purpose uh, and take this issue and, and, and quit making the House of Representatives the issue and this big speaker's battle the issue. And let's get about the work of the American people. That's what we were hired to do. Let's get about doing that. Uh, last question, sir, and I really do appreciate your time. Um, in 1910, that was the last time there was a, a motion to vacate, and uh, your fellow Republican uh, Speaker uh, Joe Cannon, he won that motion to vacate. Um, but then Republicans went on to lose the House in the elections of 1912. Are you worried that the same thing's going to happen, that the mess of this, the chaos of this is going to hurt Republicans in 2024? I do. I do. It, it is... Um uh, and, and look, you don't have to think terribly practical, practically to understand that we were given a very thin majority, very thin, four or five seat majority when we took office uh, earlier this year. And the American people are watching us every day. And they have to be deciding in their own collective minds as to whether or not we have the ability to govern the House of Representatives. And if we can come back on, I think time is still on our side. We can right this ship. But we can't come back on Tuesday, still be terribly divided, and let this whole speaker's race uh, persist now for days or weeks on end. We need it done. We need to get about the work of the American people, and we need to do it with, uh, with dispatch right now. Safe travels back to Arkansas, sir. Good to Thank see you. you. Thank Jake. you, Jake. Always so good to be with you. I appreciate it. Sources described to CNN mean girl treatment by Kevin McCarthy with Nancy Pelosi right after he was kicked out of the speakership. This one sounds... Like a middle school cafeteria story, not something from Capitol Hill. We've got to talk about this one. That's next. And we're back with CNN exclusive reporting. Republican sources saying that former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, he himself was behind the move to kick Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer out of their honorary office spaces in the Capitol, the hideaways, which happened just hours after McCarthy's ouster. Let's discuss with my panel. Ramesh, Republicans say... Uh, it's because Pelosi's office is the office of the preceding speaker. And now that McCarthy has been fired, he's the preceding speaker. Uh, Democrats believe it's a retaliation because Democrats did not step in to save uh, McCarthy. Um, what do you think? I think that Republicans are taking a kind of pleasure in this that is not solely attributable to the rules being enforced <laughs> in a consistent manner. Uh, I think um, sometimes revenge is a dish best served extremely pettily. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan are definitely running for yep. speaker. Uh, a couple other names have been floated. Uh, Congressman Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma. Um, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, I know it's early. Mm-hmm. We just had Congressman Womack on. He's a big Scalise booster. Yeah. Um, but, he, but even he said he has no idea what the vote count will look like. Um, normally there would be, uh, I have to say, like just traditionally, I've been in this town for a few decades now, it would 
generally just go to the next person. Yeah. I mean, that's how it's kind of been. Um, do you think changed. those days have changed yeah. and it's fine. It's an election. Nothing wrong with it. But what do you think is going to happen? I mean, if I were a betting person, I would put my money on Scalise. I think most of his staffers have far more experience compared to someone like a Jim Jordan or some of the other names in terms of their ability overall to whip enough votes to build the support uh, to ultimately become speaker. But something that I think is interesting here, Jake, is I think there should be some concern about the ability to continue raising money the way McCarthy did. I just host, co-hosted an event two months ago uh, for Republicans on behalf of the speaker. It was a very successful event. And one of the things that I found very interesting among some of the participants there, some of them were not even conservatives, but they liked McCarthy, particularly from a business perspective. Mm. And I'm not certain if some of the other names we've heard thus far will be able to have that gravitas. Mm. Yeah, listen, and I think that was part of uh, Kevin McCarthy's appeal, right? Mm -hmm. He seemed sort of like a standard issue, moderate, a Chamber of Commerce Republican, right? He, of course, had his appeal to folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene and his uh, way of being MAGA and, and going to genuflect before Donald Trump. But at the same time, just the sort of establishment wing of the party liked him. You saw, obviously, a lot of moderates uh, back him as well. And so I think a question is, does he sort of stay? in that role. Some people are like, does he retire? Does he stay? Sounds like he's going to have a very big office, um, Nancy Pelosi's <laughs> uh, old office. And, and, you know, if it's Jordan, I think some people are maybe worried about what would the Republican brand be like if it's Jim Jordan, who is a bit of a firebrand, who's certainly much more on the MAGA wing uh, than someone like Steve Scalise. He sure, he sure does seem to be more. I mean, Steve Scalise is a very conservative right. Republican. <laughs> Um, but but uh, Jim Jordan does seem to be more of a of a MAGA type candidate. I mean, Donald Trump hasn't endorsed anybody uh, yet. We don't know if he will. Although there was this reporting uh, from Donald Trump's unofficial White House chief of staff, Sean Hannity. That's what they used to refer to him <laughs> as uh, on his show last night. Uh, take a listen. Sources telling me at this hour, some House Republicans have been in contact with and have started an effort to draft former President Donald Trump to be the next speaker. And I have been told uh, that uh, President Trump might be open to helping the Republican Party, at least in the short term, if necessary. This is your semi-regular reminder that you do not actually have to be a member of the House of Representatives to be speaker of the House. Uh, your thoughts? Well, it's, it's not in the text of the Constitution. It's <laughs> arguably implied in the Constitution. Look, American politics has gotten pretty ridiculous, but I don't think it's gotten quite this ridiculous. Um, I think the idea that, for example... Somewhere, somewhere a, monkey, a monkey's paw just, <laughs> yeah, right. just released a finger. Look, Donald Trump was not interested even in weighing in on this race. Is he really going to want to go through actually running the U.S. House. It's a lot of work. But but I would say Jake is very interesting about this. Donald Trump didn't say anything to come to Kevin McCarthy's defense compared to the first time where, remember, he made phone calls to individuals on the floor. And from some of the conversations that I've had with individuals, some people believe uh, that this is sort of something that the former president liked to have seen, in part because a lot of his people wondered why didn't McCarthy come out and endorse the former president. He was asked several yeah. times, and he sort of danced around it. Yeah, yeah, Trump, Trump is also a little bit bigger. That's what I was going to say. Running he's, for president he's in uh, the courtroom uh, spending his days uh, there and railing against uh, the, the system. And listen, I, I think his people came out and said he has fans on both yeah. sides, yep. uh, and he clearly does. And listen, 
I think it's also clear that even if he would have made the calls, it's not clear that he could have saved him yeah. uh, at this point. And, and I don't think and he, wouldn't want to lose. he wouldn't want yeah, to be on the losing lose. side. Yeah. yeah. So CNN's Manu Raju asked uh, Congressman Jim Jordan, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, if he would change uh, the motion to vacate, uh, the motion that uh, McCarthy somewhat uh, foolishly foolishly agreed to, although it maybe was the only way he could get the speakership, which allows one single member to go to the floor of the House and and, uh, uh, make a motion to oust the speaker. Uh, Here's what uh, Jim Jordan told Manu. I got to change the motion to vacate. That's up to the conference. That's not my call. That's up to the conference. That's not my call. That's not actually true. I mean, because if it were up to the conference, the conference would say get rid of it. Mm -hmm. But in order to get votes, Scalise, Jordan, whatever, are going to have to take a position on it, right? Well, there are some calls to change the... uh, A lot of calls. Yeah. (laughs) But it is... But not from Matt Gaetz. Well, how do you get 218 votes? And and it's going to be hard because the people who really like the ability aren't going to want to give up the ability to get rid of a speaker. No, this this sets a terrible precedent. And I I think the next speaker, Jake, is going to have to acquiesce to these guys. We have a government showdown in about 43 days. Are we going to see a repeat of this in nine months of Matthew Gates saying, well, I don't like this particular position. Therefore, I'm going to file a motion to vacate the chair again. Yes. I think you you are. (laughs) I'm answering your question. Yes, Yes, you are. See you in nine months. (laughs) All right. Thanks, one and and all. Appreciate it. A stunning report today. Stunning report from the New York Times digging into that indictment against Democratic Senator Bob Menendez and finding a deadly crash, a car crash from 2018 that might explain a lot about some of the allegations about the senator and his wife. Stay with us. A new report in the New York Times reveals that Democratic Senator Bob Menendez's wife, Nadine, hit and killed a man with her car in 2018 before she and the senator were married. And this car crash is allegedly what started the bribe that was listed in last month's federal indictment against Senator Menendez, his wife, and three others. The indictment claims that two of those co-defendants offered to help buy Nadine Menendez a new Mercedes in exchange for the senator interfering in the prosecution of one of the co-defendants' business associates. Nadine Medendez's lawyer told the New York Times, quote, my understanding was this individual ran in front of her car and she was not at fault, unquote. Joining us now is CNN's John Miller. John, thanks for joining us. So according to the Times, Mrs. Menendez was not tested for drinking or drugs after the crash. How unusual is it for police to not check for that after a, a deadly car accident? No, no. Well, in the state of New Jersey, uh, to get a test like that in a motor vehicle accident, even one with a fatality, there has to be not probable cause, uh, but at least reasonable suspicion observed by the officer that the person might be in intoxicated condition or on drugs. That would be slurred speech, unsteady on her feet, smell of alcohol on the breath. And police don't observe any of that at the scene, according to their report. And when you look at the video, she's articulating the words clearly. Um, she appears to be steady. So it's not something that they could have done absent one of those factors. Sport video, a retired police officer arriving on the scene saying that his wife was friends with Ms. Menendez uh, and was asking about any potential charges. Does that raise your antenna at all? I mean, it would raise my antenna just because it should. But if you listen to at least what's recorded on tape, I think what's more significant is what he's not asking. What he's asking is, 
Um, he's a retired officer. Um, he's asking us if the prosecutor's office is going to be involved. In Bergen County, New Jersey, if there's a fatal accident, the prosecutor's office actually runs the team along with the sheriff's department that comes to the scene of fatal accidents and investigates. What he's not asking is, he's not taking the officer on the side and saying, is there anything we can do? Um, can you help us out? Is there a professional courtesy? He's just asking if the prosecutor's office is going to be notified, and he's told, yes, it is, and he says, well, I understand why, indicating that he understands the victim has passed away. So Richard Coop was the individual killed in the accident, and his family has lots of questions. Um, who makes the call on whether an investigation into a, a fatal car accident like this stays open or, or is closed? Well, this happens in the township of Bogota, New Jersey, um, and their police department responds and they immediately control the scene. But ultimately, the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office and the Sheriff's Bureau of Criminal Investigation take over the processing of the scene and make the determination on criminal charges. In this case, there were no criminal charges brought. There was no summons issued. Um, based on the video they recovered and her statement, she said, I was driving along. The individual darted out between cars, and the next thing I know, you know, he was on top of my windshield. That is roughly it. Absent something to disprove that, it would have been difficult for them to bring a criminal charge. Uh, they issued a subpoena for her phone, though. And, Jake, this is important. It means, was she texting when, when she didn't see him? Was she talking on the phone? Was she doing something else? And we don't have in any of these reports the results of that subpoena. So a couple of more questions we have to run down. All right, John Miller, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Former President Trump has had a lot to say about The Washington Post and its owner, Jeff Bezos. We're going to go behind the scenes of that fight with the man who was stuck in the middle of it. Stay with us. As democracy unfolds, albeit messily, before our eyes this week, most of America's journalists are trying to cover it as best we can and with as much objectivity as possible. Quote, we are not at war. We are at work. That mantra from Washington Post legend Marty Barron, 17, Pol 17 Pulitzer Prizes under his belt, including 10 at The Washington Post, where he was the executive editor for nearly a decade. Before that, he was editor of the Boston Globe, notably during its landmark investigation into the Catholic Church, concealing the fact that priests were sexually abusing children. That coverage was later portrayed in the Oscar-winning movie Spotlight. And now Marty Barron has a new memoir titled Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos, and The Washington Post. It is out now, and he is here to talk about it. Thanks so much for being here, Marty. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having so me. So I want to start with uh, Washington Post contributing columnist Jamal Khashoggi, because this week marks five years since he was brutally murdered at the direction of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, and according to U.S. intelligence. In your book, you write that the Trump administration thought the Washington Post was, quote, irrationally obsessed with his murder. And you write Trump would come to acknowledge during M MBS, doing MBS a big favor. I saved his ass, Trump told Bob Woodward for his 2020 book, Rage. I was able to get Congress to leave him alone. Very uh, bizarre thing to brag about. But I have to say, Trump is one of the reasons, but he's not the only reason that MBS has gotten away with murder in front of our, all of our eyes, I think. No, I mean, I think that that's right. I mean, I look, obviously, people want to, a lot of people want to protect Saudi Arabia. It's a source of a tremendous amount of oil. Uh, the U.S. has alliances with, uh, with Saudi Arabia as well. Uh, but, um, you know, he's been protected by Congress. Uh, he's been protected by uh, Trump. 
He's been protected by Jared Kushner, who uh, now is managing $2 billion in, uh, in assets from Saudi Arabia. What a coincidence. Yeah, it, it is a strange coincidence, isn't it? Uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, really something. I mean, it's kind of like an incredible payoff that's right out in the open. Let's turn to Jeff Bezos, um, th- who owns The Washington Post. As we all remember, Trump incessantly bashed Bezos and his ownership of The Washington Post. You insist Bezos never weighed in on editorial decisions. But you also write in the book, um, Donald Trump had to be a less pleasurable subject for Bezos, though he was obviously giving stories about him uh, a, a close read. In one passage, Bezos seemed to suggest that the Post should make an endorsement in the 2016 race you were considering not endorsing at all. That does seem to be counting, that count is weighing in a little bit, no? Well, look, I mean, he's the owner. He had some role in the editorial pages, which I was not involved in the editorial pages. I was overseeing our news cover. Okay, so he didn't weigh in on the news. So, yeah, I mean, the editorial page editor, Fred Hyatt, the late Fred Hyatt, uh, brought up when and if we make an endorsement. But Jeff said, uh, well, what do you mean, when and if? Uh, He felt that the paper should make an endorsement. And uh, clearly, uh, the the Post had run a lot of critical critical editorials about, uh, about Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, that was the natural endorsement to make, uh, and that's what they ultimately did. And Trump really declared war on Bezos, talking about how Amazon shouldn't get deals when it came to postage because of the Washington Post coverage of Trump. I mean, I've never seen you describe it. uh, Well, tell us how you describe it. Well, I mean, look, uh, Trump was arguing that it was getting too much of a deal, that it was getting a deal, but there was really no evidence that it was getting any deal whatsoever. And Trump argued that their postal rates should be increased, should be doubled. Then he said tripled. Then he said quadrupled. I mean, might imagine that he was making these numbers up, right? So, and then he intervened in a cloud computing contract, uh, a $10 billion cloud computing co- contract. It looked like Amazon was the lead bidder for that, and Trump intervened, and then it, it uh, did not go to Amazon. So I want to bring up something that I disagree with you on, if that's okay. Um, so Felicia Samas, uh, a former Post reporter who was highly critical of the Post's paper, uh, the leadership, um, and you're critical of uh, how often she tweeted. And I don't want to get into that and your social media policies, because I certainly understand where you're coming from. But there's one specific instance that I think you're wrong. Just over an hour after TMZ reported that Los Angeles Lakers legend Kobe Bryant died, she tweeted a link to a Daily Beast story titled, quote, Kobe Bryant's disturbing rape case, the DNA evidence, the accuser story, and the half confession. And you objected to that. Uh, she was put on administrative leave while the Post investigated if she had violated the company's social media policy. In your book, you describe being livid over her tweet. First of all, I can't think of anything more journalistic in the sense that we are the ones that are supposed to bring up the most uncomfortable truths to the public than that tweet. And second of all, I bet there were millions of rape survivors and sexual assault survivors that saw her tweet and thought, thank God somebody out there is speaking for me. Sure. Look, I mean, uh, we when we have done obituaries on uh, controversial people, we always bring up their moments of dishonor. We discuss that. We report on that. But we also assign certain people to do those kinds of stories. We don't expect anybody in the newsroom to decide to throw out commentary as they wish, whenever they wish, in whatever manner they wish. And so, of course, we were going to deal with that, those rape allegations in the obituary that we were writing. Uh, she decided to put out a tweet less than an hour after it had been confirmed by uh, the Associated Press. The death of Kobe Bryant had been confirmed by the Associated Press. She wasn't involved in the story. We didn't ask her to be involved in the story. 
coverage. And, the, and we took great care, and we take great care in our coverage of sensitive issues to write those stories in a sensitive way uh, and to decide when we're going to publish it. We can't have any one of a thousand people on our staff decide, taking, on, on, taking responsibility themselves to say how we should cover a particular story. We assign particular reporters to do it. They have editors, and they're the ones who make those judgments. Right, but unless you're just going to ban everybody on your staff from tweeting and social media posts completely, I I still just don't understand what she did wrong. I mean, look, I'm from Philadelphia, okay? Kobe Bryant went to Lower Marion High School. His dad coached at my high school, girls' varsity basketball. I want to believe the myth about Kobe, Kobe Bryant, too. But there is this ugly incident in 2003. I don't want to think about it. And I certainly didn't want to think about it after he died. But what Felicia did is journalism. Uh, Well, I mean, look, we as uh, editors decide who's going to cover a story, how we're going to cover a story. You do that here. But she was just tweeting. It was just a tweet. It wasn't just a tweet, okay? It was a tweet at a particular moment in a particular way that created an enormous reaction Whereas people focused on us at the Washington Post as opposed to focusing on our coverage of Kobe Bryant. Of course we were going to cover that, and we did. And we had covered those rape allegations aggressively beforehand. Yeah, but, but why, why did the Post and why did you respond so strongly to it, do you think? Because we didn't ask her to get involved in that story. We don't feel she should have been involved in that story. The people who should have been involved in that story were the people we assigned to be involved in that story. And it distracted attention from the coverage that we were undertaking. I guess the only other thing I want to ask about this is a 2018 CDC study shows that 81 percent of women and 43 percent of men in the U.S. reported experienced some form of sexual harassment and or assault in their lifetime. You yourself, when you were at the Boston Globe, did so much for victims of sexual assault and uh, the victims of the Catholic Church. And I just wonder if maybe you have a blind spot on this. Well, I don't think I have a blind spot on this, and I'm glad that you pointed that out. I mean, look, we did enormous work at the, at the, at the Boston Globe uh, to highlight sexual abuse by priests and the cover of that yes, sexual abuse. 100%. Exactly. But I just brought we, it up. But the fact is, okay, Jake, but we took great care with how we did those stories. Right. We didn't have everybody tweeting whatever they wanted. We didn't have people tweeting about celibacy or anything like that. Yeah. We picked the reporters to work on that. We selected the headlines. We were very careful with the headlines. We were very careful with how those stories were written. And that's what a news organization is supposed to do. Let's decide how we are going to cover these sensitive issues. That's what we wanted to do in the case of Kobe Bryant. Let's, uh, let's assign the right reporters to work on it. Let's have editors involved in those, in those discussions and in the, and in the formation of that, that coverage. And those are the people who should focus on it, not just anybody on the staff. Look. It's okay that I agree with you on 95% of the book, and we disagree on a tweet. Marty Barron, the book is Collision of Power. Congratulations. It's uh, great to have you here. Thank you. We'll be right back. Sad story in our national lead, a university's homecoming celebration thrown into chaos by gunfire, leaving five people, four of them students, injured, thankfully with non-life-threatening injuries, after shots erupted outside a crowded homecoming event last night. Right now, Police in Baltimore are searching for a suspect, but they say they believe the five victims shot were unintended targets. The shooting at Morgan State University is now one of at least 531 mass shootings in this country so far this year. 531 and 58 shootings on school grounds. In 2020, guns became the number one killer 
of American children, if you include those up to 19. Guns kill more kids each year in the U.S. than cars, than cancer, than poison. That is a statistic that is unique to the United States. This just isn't the case in any other comparable country in the world. Since January 1st this year, more than 1,300 kids and teens have been killed by gunfire. That is 1,300 birthdays that will not be celebrated next year, 1,300 heartbroken families. This month, CNN is telling some of these children's stories. How they died is important, but let's also remember how they lived. Stories such as 10-year-old Frankie Rosilas, who loved science and math and would have celebrated his 11th birthday today. He walked into the room and lit it up. You know, his presence was always felt. He loved to laugh and just have a good time and goof around. He was just different from all the other kids, you know. He cared deeply about people and his friends and his family, just everyone and everything. He was like an old soul trapped in a little kid's body, you know? He just had uh, so much life in him. He was like a light. Hi, guys. It's Frankie Show's on TV. He uh, loved to play baseball. He just loved to be a part of the team, you know? He loved the anime. Um, His birthday's in October, so he wanted me to get him a costume, and it's the Demon Slayer, and um, that's the costume that he had. I buried him in in that costume, and it was perfect. It was perfect. Just every day waking up without him here is hard. It's just like a whole, it's, I just feel empty. Like, it, I feel empty inside. Like, there's just nothing. He was, he was my baby. He was my baby. Please read the CNN series that profiles America's youngest gun victims at CNN.com. Our coverage continues with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room right after this. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode. 